0: It's the people with the most grit that really rise to the top of whatever profession or pursuit they're going after. And that's what I've taught myself to do is to cultivate my grit. And when I fail to pick myself back up and figure out what I need to do differently next time and to keep moving forward.
1: Hello and welcome to the Race Mod Podcast. This is episode number 59. I'm Kevin, entrepreneur, technology and fitness nerd. And I'm joined by the head coach of Race Mob and master motivator, the incomparable Bertrand Newsom. Hey there, Race Mob crew. We have a number of new episodes already recorded and ready for August and September. But we wanted to revisit one of our favorite conversations this week, and how apt as well, as we're launching two incredible challenges here in the month of August. First, if you're looking to join a small community that's going to focus on achieving a goal together, then join our August Commitment Challenge. Tell us what your goals are, and you can get paired with new runners, those looking to lose weight, runners looking to run further this August, or those looking for a performance boost. Each group is gonna be led by an incredible coach with weekly Zoom calls, and the challenge is completely free this month as we're testing it for the future. So join the challenge at racemob.com challenge. Second, we're gonna be launching a fun hydration challenge towards the end of the month, featuring Hammer Nutrition. All you have to do is simply drink 16 ounces of water as soon as you wake up, be mindful of your hydration throughout the day, and interact with us daily on social media for a chance to win a Hammer Nutrition prize pack. Follow our Instagram handle at racemob or join our Facebook community. Speaking about hydration, as we watch these peak performers compete at the Olympics, it reminded Coach B and me about this amazing conversation that we had back in September, 2020 with Will Turner. This world record setter was hospitalized during his first half marathon because he didn't know how to handle his hydration properly, but he came back strong and finished over a hundred Ironman distance triathlons over the course of two years. On top of that, he's just a fantastic storyteller, and you learn a lot from this whole conversation. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Will Turner. We are so excited to welcome Will Turner to the Race Mob podcast. Welcome, Will. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I mean, you're most well known for shattering the world record in Ironman triathlons over the course of one year and then two years when you continued it on. And I'm sure that we're going to get into it really, really deeply. But you're also known for this motto, and it's Live Your Bold. And so what does Live Your Bold mean to you?
0: Yeah, Live Your Bold is just being your best self, pushing yourself, pushing your limits, um, pushing through your comfort zone to live more boldly, to to really not let things or yourself or other people hold you back for what your potential is.
1: Awesome. That's a great motto. Can you walk us through how you got into athletics from a very early age.
0: I grew up on a farm in Virginia. And, you know, we had cows and horses and at one point some pigs. And, you know, so it was a very active outdoors kind of lifestyle that I had as a kid. I played Little League sports. You know, my my parents definitely pushed us in that direction. So I played Little League football and baseball, and I, I swam on a swim team and all that sort of stuff. Early on, I mean, probably by the time I was 12 or so. I, I, I did have some, just an ability to run pretty good, better than other things. I was always tall and lean and a skinny kid. And my brother was just the opposite. He was very stocky and muscular. And my, my brother loved football. And so he wanted to play on football team. So I got drafted because we always did things together. He was a couple years younger than I was. But I got drafted to you know go out for Little League football too. And I was awful at it. <laughs> <laughs> One part about practice that I like was that at the beginning of practice and at the end of practice, the coaches would make us run a lap or two laps around the football field. And I would always finish first among all the kids, you know. And I would look back and I'd be 20 or 30 yards ahead of everybody. And I just made it my mission just to, like, put some distance between me and everybody else. At one point, my football coach, who realized I wasn't very good at football, you know, after I got back from my lap one time, he said, Will you should really go out for the cross-country team when you get to junior high, which I was a couple years away from then. So that kind of planted the seed. A month or two before cross-country tryouts were at my junior high, or equivalent to middle school these days, I was in a farming accident with my dad. And literally, I was riding on the behind the tractor where a trailer, a hay track trailer was hooked up. My foot got caught between a tow bar and the The hits of the trailer. And essentially, when my dad made a turn with the tractor, it caught my foot and literally squeezed it into the point that when the pressure was released, my foot split wide open. Oh, my. And, and literally, I felt this huge, just rush of heat and liquid. It was blood just rush, you know, through my body and through my leg. And I was wearing big old calf high work boots and, My father helped me to the back of the trailer to lay me down to check on things and pulled the boot off and it was full of blood. Long story short, I ended up getting rushed to the hospital, getting hundreds of stitches in the bottom of my foot. That ended my cross-country aspirations at that point. Um, And it took me years to even be able to get back to you know just normal walking, running without feeling discomfort or pain and that sort of stuff. So um, definitely, you know, not, not what you want to have happen to you, but, you know, something to, to, to get through along the way. So throughout high school and throughout
1: college, you probably didn't participate in sports?
0: No, not, not really. Very, very little. I, my, my biggest sports accolades in, in, in college was I played intramural jarts and made it to the semifinals.
1: Hey, <laughs> that is not bad. That's, that's some skills.
2: If you're bold.
0: <laughs>
1: exactly. Talk to us a little bit about then when did you actually get into sports and into running?
0: I decided when I was in my, probably my late 20s, probably about 27, 28, I decided on a whim that I want to do a half marathon. And I started training, but didn't really know what I was doing. And I went for longer runs for me, but I think the longest run I probably did up to that race was about a nine or 10 mile run. And I didn't do training of any consistency. I, it just, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, this is pre-internet, pre being able, you know, I didn't have any friends that ran. It was just like me trying to figure it out. Well, long story short, I show up at race day and it ends up being the hottest day in record for this particular race. This This is an embarrassing story. So I'm getting to the first water station on the course. And as I'm getting up and I'm Seeing all these other people grab water, I'm thinking, you know, I've never been in a race before. I don't know what you do, but I'm thinking, okay, I need to grab some water. I'm like headed over to grab something, and this little like twelve, I'm twenty-some. This little twelve-year-old kid like starts running past me. And I look over at him, thinking, what in the world this kid is this? And so I avoided the water. And I keep going. You know, it's like, I'm not to just, like, go past me. <laughs> So I keep going. I don't stop at any water stations. I get to this pretty steep incline hill. It's probably about a 10% incline. That's about a mile from the finish line. At this point, the heat has gotten to me. I end up like staggering up the hill and, and the spectators literally stopped me because they were worried about me and made me lie down. I ended up getting taken to the medic tent. I ended up from there being taken to the hospital to get some fluids in me and all that sort of stuff. At the time, my wife and my mother were waiting for me at the finish line and couldn't imagine where I was when they started taking down all the signs and that the race was <laughs> over. They're like talking to the officials like, my, you know, my husband, my son have, hasn't shown up yet. And they, they, you know, they find me at the, the hospital a couple hours away. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was the first time that dehydration, you know, took the best of me and, um, it wouldn't be my last.
1: Yeah, you said it, it wouldn't be your last. So I think the first couple you were running into dehydration issues, right?
0: What got me into marathons years later, I had a friend who had a brain tumor. And um, he was married to one of my best friends. And, and she had decided she was going to run the Richmond Marathon to run raise money for the Virginia Brain Tumor Fund. And she asked me if I wanted to run with her. And I wanted to support them. But my running in those days was running two to three miles with my golden retriever just to get his energy out. And that was it. So running a marathon was like, whoa, I hadn't tried anything of any long distance since my half marathon debacle. So um, at this point, I was like 44 years old. And um, I, I decided to to run the the marathon for Tom. And um, that started my more endurance focus at that point. And I had that race and and several races years over the next several years where I really struggled with the whole dehydration thing um, and ended up either in the medic tent or one other time in the hospital because of dehydration. I've gotten a little better (laughs) at that since then. But even I will not go out now um, to this day on a, a one, two, three mile run and not have a water bottle with me. And if I am running a race, I'm not only running with a water bottle, but I'm stopping at every aid station and taking in whatever fluids I can, just because I naturally sweat a lot. And if I'm not careful, I go off the rails with dehydration. So I've learned how to manage it and what the signs are before I get there, but I still struggle with it. You know, And something I have to overcome every time I go out for a long run, especially when it's hot.
2: And maybe we'll later in the conversation, we can go in a little bit more detail on some tips you may want to give our listeners. Yeah. Why not right now?
0: So on, on the journey, I had a couple Dehydration moments as well, so I mean I, I still struggle with it, but I, I have learned what are the signs. One of the signs that I get is my ears start popping. It's almost like you're in an airplane or you're traveling up a mountainside and you get the elevation popping in your ears, your ears you don't hear as well and so to me that's a sign that okay I'm, I'm dehydrating, so I, I know that certainly taking salt tabs and, and other electrolytes I'm much more. Focus on that, always, you know, focus on the nutrition uh, and the hydration part of, of it on the front end, but also during. Um, and when it's really hot, preparing ahead, if it's on the course, you might have it on the course, but if you're going off for a training run or something, having ice and wet washcloths and things that you can roll up in ice to kind of keep your, your body and your core temperatures cooler, you know, putting it down your, your shirt, having a race belt on and, and running with ice, you know, against your, belly in your chest is a great way to kind of help relieve some of the overheating that comes along with the dehydration.
2: Really good tips. And going back to your very first marathon, again, you signed up because a friend was ill. They just do that because for many, that very first marathon experience is unique and special in its own way. But when you're doing it for somebody else, it just takes on a different level, a much deeper meaning. So if you can share that experience with our listeners.
0: Tom was, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor and immediately literally went from a doctor's office visit to you have to go to the hospital right now. And they ended up operating like two days later. He had the, the surgery and then he was going through the recovery, but then he was actually dealing with a lot of issues not initially in the recovery, but within a couple months, things were not going well. And so the marathon was actually scheduled in that time frame. And my friend Beth had come to me and said, Will, do you want to run? And I'm like, Beth, you know I want to do it with for you and, and for Tom. I said, I don't know if I can. And she was part way into her training. It, it was early August at this point in the race, I think was early November. And so she was up to like an eight or nine mile run for her long runs. And so we planned to meet and go for a A eight or nine mile run, which I hadn't done in years and years and years, and we we did the run, and I got through it, and we you know we stopped a couple of times along the way, but yeah, at the end of the run, I said I'm in. So we started training together and and getting ready for it. And the weeks and months before the race, Tom just started getting weaker and weaker. He's about my size, like six two, 185 pounds, that sort of framework. A day or two before the race, he was so weak and he lost so much weight. He was probably down to about 110 pounds. He lost so much weight that he didn't have the strength to walk anymore. And, and part of the plan was I was running with Beth, and, and she had recruited a couple other folks, and the four of us were running as part of the team to support Tom and, and raise money and all that sort of stuff. The day before, since Tom was so weak, Beth ended up going out to a local medical rental place and, and renting a wheelchair. The marathon just happened to go by their house about two blocks from their house, and it was about the halfway point of the marathon. A lot of friends and family of theirs had come in for the race and to support Tom, and we were making a big celebration of it. And so everybody was supposed to meet. The four of us that were running kind of went off to start the race, and they were all going to be cheering us on at the halfway point with Tom right there. And you know, we had our, you know, our shirts on and all this stuff to really make it a big celebration. We get halfway, we see best mom, we see all these friends that were there waiting for us, and there's no Tom. And we're like, Where, where's Tom? And um best mom says he was so weak that morning he couldn't even get into the wheelchair to be wheeled up to, to watch us. So the four of us went off the course, ran to their house, had a beautiful moment with Tom just to say, you know, we're in this together, buddy, we're, you know, and just, you know, have like this little hug fest. And then we went, ran back on the course and then, you know, finished, finished the race. But that, you know, definitely just, if anything's going to get you to run a marathon, it's doing something for somebody that you love. And um, Tom ended up passing away a couple weeks later. But having that experience was wonderful. Having all of his friends and family there was wonderful. The, a little prologue to uh, the story, a year later, Beth says to me, she goes, you know, Tom was actually a marathon runner. He had run like eight or nine marathons. And the next year, the Philly Marathon was coming up. And she said, Will, the Philly Marathon was one of Tom's favorites. You want to do it this year? And so I'm like, absolutely. So the the following year, we ran the Philly Marathon. And I've run many races, you know, since then, you know, in honor of Tom. And definitely is something that, that makes you push a little harder when you've got a good purpose for doing it. Thank
2: you so much, Will, for sharing.
0: Talk
1: to us if you would about after that first marathon and how did you get into running after that? And, and was there a point where you started actually enjoying runs? Um, cause you said before that first marathon, you, you weren't enjoying it too much.
0: After that first half marathon experience, I had some more runs. I, I started getting to running a little bit more, I actually organized, uh, Richmond's first stairwell race and did that for a number of years. And, um, Got involved. I was involved with a bunch of uh, nonprofits, so helped organize a bunch of 5Ks and and did some running that way. It was the marathon experience that really opened the door for the more the longer distance and the endurance events. And and I definitely loved the challenge of it. the endurance piece and the fact that I ended up in the medic tent. The fact that I wasn't very good at it was actually the reason why I kept at it because it challenged me. It made me want to grow and be better. And so there was always. You know, whether it was nailing down nutrition or hydration or just building, uh, you know, a pace in the engine I needed. You know, it definitely was something I found challenging. But at the same time, the struggle made you feel stronger and better and more confident. So it fueled me along the way. You know, at that point, after my first marathon, I was 44, almost 45 years old. I really started the more endurance path that I've been on for the last you know, 20 years or so.
1: So talk to us about triathlons.
0: I, I did my first triathlon actually with Beth years before I did the first marathon with her. I actually was going, I'd gone through a divorce, so I was finding myself with some extra time and I, I didn't want to wallow in my self-pity. And I thought, let me do a triathlon. This was like 93, 94. And triathlons were not big back then. I mean, there were a few around, but you know, there, there definitely wasn't the craze that there is today. And so I signed up for my first triathlon. And this was a shorter distance triathlon. And I remember Beth and I were at the award ceremony after the race, just hanging around. And, you know, we, of course, were, this was our first one. We weren't getting any awards. We just wanted to kind of be there for the experience. And I remember this guy who went up to get his first place award. He was like in the 50 to 55 age category. And he walks up to the, the little state, the setup for the stage and he's so fit and looks so healthy and looks so young and vital and and strong and, and I'm thinking that's what I want to be when I'm 50 some years old right I want to be that guy who you know is still out there doing it and pushing it and so he became you know a very inspirational figure and I, he actually was a member of my gym so I used to see him on a regular basis and you know talk to him and that sort of stuff um but that got me started on the path of Triathlons, and I was combining the triathlons with the running at that point and, you know, being fairly consistent with it. And as I was coming up to my 50th birthday, I decided I wanted a BHAG, which is a big, hairy, audacious goal. I thought, what would be a big, hairy, audacious goal? I can combine the endurance side of things with the triathlon side of things. And obviously, the idea was I could do an Ironman the year I turned 50, which at that point in my life, I thought that was huge. And it, it was, you know. And so I, I trained for my first Ironman. Actually, at that point, Beth had moved to New Zealand after Tom had died. She had some connections in New Zealand, decided to move to New Zealand. And so I decided to do my first Ironman in New Zealand and go visit her, which was amazing. And that just started the journey. It ramped up the journey even more. I mean, that experience was life-changing in a lot of different ways. And I started to really, on that part of the journey, really embrace, you know, the the hard training, the discipline training, the commitment that I needed, definitely training harder than I'd ever trained before, and really studying the art and science of what I needed to do to be the best athlete I could be at that point. And, you know, that led to doing an Ironman, started every other year, then it started every year, then it turned into a double, and it turned into a quid and then it turned into... 105 Ironmans over a few years. It definitely was a slow build. You know, it, it's not something I went into and said, "I got this." But you know, I had been over the last ten years before I started the 60 at 60. You know, and then onto the 100 plus. You know, I had been testing myself more and more and getting to the point where I could get to today or get to where I needed to be.
1: And part of that success has been being injury free over all of these years. And so can you talk to that? Talk
0: to how you prevent injuries? You know, it's definitely a lesson learned kind of thing. I I tell people that I'm a Zen athlete, um, meaning that I'm very mindful and present, particularly with my body. And so I really pay attention to what's going on with my body and, and making sure if I feel something that doesn't feel right, I'm, you know, looking at my form, I'm thinking about what I can do, I'm making sure I'm Massaging or doing whatever I might need to do if there's a muscle issue. I'm, you know, working on core strength to make sure I've got that good form. You know, I'm getting plenty of rest and recovery. But again, lesson learned the, the reality was one of my earlier marathons, not probably my third or fourth marathon, I was doing some biking and I felt something in my knee. And I, at the time I was training for the Richmond Marathon. And I noticed after I felt this thing happened that when I ran, it didn't get worse, but it didn't get better. I was in pain and I was in discomfort, but I could manage it. And I knew if I went to my sports doctor, she would say, well, you got to lay off. We need to do something. You can't run the marathon. And I was being very stubborn. And, you know, as many athletes are.
2: Wait, what? Really? (laughs) Really? Yes.
0: (laughs) Right. And so literally, I trained for the marathon and I cut back my training regimen, you know, to not train as hard or as long, but enough so I could get through the marathon okay. And I knew that I was just going to do this marathon for fun. So I wasn't going to try to do any PR or anything. So I had a company back then that was called Dancing Elephants Achievement Group. And um, we had run a local 10K race and we had run in Dancing Elephants t-shirts with tutus at one point. And so I decided for the marathon, I was going to wear a pink tutu. And on the back of my T-shirt, I wrote, got a bum knee, shouldn't really run, but the marathon is just too, too fun. (laughs) So I I ran the marathon with my tutu. um, And then shortly after that, I got an appointment with my sports doctor, went in to see her, find out that I had partially torn my patella tendon, and I'd done more damage and caused some extra scarring and things because I had been running on it for two or three months. And hadn't gone to get help immediately. And so that was the wake up call that I needed. That was like, you know, Will, you knew you were injured. You were being stubborn. You know, this is time to take one of those life lessons and apply it. So ever since that point, that's what I've done with my running. And that's where I, the Zen athlete part of me comes into play is I, I, I don't want to, it ended up taking about 18 months from start to finish before I was back where I was pre injury. I'm like, I'm not gonna go through that again. So I do a lot of things now that I didn't do before just because I learned the hard way. So if anybody's listening out there, don't repeat my mistakes to learn from them, hopefully.
2: It's a great takeaway, you know. That's a, a exceptional takeaway.
0: You know, when you're looking at your time and your pace and all that sort of stuff, you're you're trying to nail a race, you're trying to nail a workout. And sometimes because we're so focused on that, we're not paying attention to our bodies. And I think most of us have enough awareness to realize that, you know, we can push ourselves and just mentally tough it out and give it everything we've got. And that's okay. But we we shouldn't be doing that when it can cause physical harm, or where we've got a damage that we can exacerbate and make worse. And so it's knowing that distinction and not just gutting it out regardless, because you can, because it's going to cause, you know, more injury. My goal is, you know, I'm 62 years old now. And I want to be doing this when I'm Eighty, you know, I want to be doing this when I'm ninety. I, I, I want my body to hold up as long as possible, so I want to train hard and but train smart. And I think you can do both if you if you're mindful of what you're doing and, and not letting you know your, your ego get in the way.
2: Thank you, Well, If you could share the importance of nutrition and diet, because one thing I mean, we see you are putting in the work clearly. You look fantastic. When you say sixty-two, years young not 62 years old. Um, But if you could share and kind of peel back the curtain on your diet and and how that has helped sustain your health um, as you continue to move forward in your uh, fitness journey.
0: I've always been a healthy eater, but I'm not obsessed about it. I mean, I don't mind if I have a piece of pizza or a dessert. You know, I don't eat it every day. So I mean, I don't count calories or that sort of stuff. I just look at my overall diet, and just make sure that I'm getting a good balance of, of foods that I need, and not, you know, over critiquing anything at any given time. But, you know, I've, I've gone vegan, I've gone vegetarian, I've gone back to, you know, I've kind of dabbled with a lot of different things. But I, I do try to eat a whole foods diet and try to be as healthy as I can, again, without obsessing about it. And, and you know, certainly that plays out with, you know, when you're racing long, you know, just making sure that in, in the world of Ironman, they say, you know, it's four disciplines. It's, it's swim, bike, run, nutrition, and that, you know, if you mess the nutrition up, it can ruin your day and, and take you out. So, I mean, really paying attention to nutrition um, and hydration is, is a big part of, of doing that. And, and with everybody, I mean, it, it's a lot of experimenting what works well for you, right? Uh, especially from a race and training perspective, is, is really understanding what your body needs because everybody's different. I've got some friends who are great marathon runners who don't take a sip of water the whole time, which it, to me is like, oh my god, how do you do that? And I'm I'm down in as much as I can, and it, you know we're all different. So just finding those things that work for you that you know is good for your system. Luckily, I've got a cast iron stomach, so I can I don't usually have any issues with you know digestive issues, but I know a lot of people do. So you have to worry about, you know, what if I'm taking this goo or this gel or this block or this peanut butter and jelly sandwich, how is that going to affect me while I'm continuing on my my race or my run? So just kind of experimenting to, to figure that out is part of, I think, what every athlete's journey is to, to get to some place where they can be performing at their optimal level.
2: What about uh, supplementation? Vitamins, fish oil, protein powders, things along those lines that you've incorporated over time? Um, I've dabbled with a few of those
0: things over time and never really stuck to any of them and really feel like I'm getting a, a balanced nutrition from what I'm I'm eating. The uh, My only thing is that I've, I've discovered for myself is at the end of a very long workout, and I'm talking like a 20-mile run or um, certainly an Ironman or a marathon or something like that, I've got a recovery drink that I use. And there's a lot of great recovery drinks out there. And you, you usually find what works for you and you like, stick to it. For me, it's Endurox R4. I get the chocolate Endurox R4 mix, combine it with almond milk, and I down that, and I feel great the next day. I swear by it because I, I know how it works for me. I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, you know, I was had this friend, colleague come in from work, from, and they'd just finished a marathon, and they were hobbling around, and, you know, here you are going on an Ironman, and then you turn around to another Ironman during my hundred and five I had um
2: just when you say that, it's just like wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had four back to back Ironman. So one Iron Man and one the next day. So four that were doubles and then I had one triple. So there were some days where I literally had to recover and then, you know, wake up the next morning, you know, get four hours of sleep and do it all over again type thing. So I have to have something that is gonna help restore me as quickly as possible. So that recovery drink, to me, is the godsend to help me do that. If I if I didn't do that, I would feel a lot more discomfort and be struggling a lot more than I
2: normally would. Yeah, we'll be sure to share you know in the show notes a link to that product, for sure, if you endorse it.
0: You can add water. You can add milk. I drink almond milk, and I love the combination of the almond milk with the chocolate. I, it's like drinking chocolate milk, but better for you, you know, type thing, so...
1: Let's, let's go ahead and dive right into it. So what made you say, okay, I can do four Ironman a year and say, let's do 60. Let's do 60 in a year. What, yeah. <laughs> what sparked it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I told you about my hag when I, I did turn 50 was to do my first Ironman. And while I was doing that, I came across a quote that just really resonated with me. And it said, you know, if your dream doesn't scare you, it's not big enough. And at the time, doing the Ironman was big enough. You know, I'd struggle with some marathons. So I thought, you know, I'm going to add a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and then a marathon. That really scared me. So, you know, that kind of started that path. So as I was coming, actually, it was about three years before I was turning 60. I just had this thought, you know, what should I do when I turn 60? You know, I can commemorate it just like when I turned 50. I can do something big. And the first thought that came in my mind was I could do six Ironmans the year I turned 60. I thought, wow, that would be huge. And it, and it would have been. And um, shortly after I had that thought, I was at a local triathlon, a shorter distance triathlon in town. And I, I was coaching some of the athletes that were competing. So I just went out to be a spectator and cheer them on. And as I was out there, I ran into a, uh, another athlete that I was friends with that was watching the race. And she said, you know, Willie, got any big race plans coming up? And I, I said, well, as a matter of fact, you know, it's a few years out, but I'm thinking about doing six Ironmans a year I turn 60. And immediately, very matter-of-factly, she goes, oh, like song. And I'm like, what? And this guy is in the local triathlon community. I didn't know him, but I knew who he was. And I didn't know much about his story, but I knew he did Ironmans. And it turns out he had turned 60 a couple years before and done six Ironmans. And I give him all the props necessary because I don't know any other 60-year-olds who have done six Ironmans. But... Immediately it just took the wind out of my sails. It's like I just think I had this huge big goal. And all of a sudden the first person I mentioned it to said, Oh, like so but somebody else. I'm like, huh. So I, I went back home and I just felt a little, you know, depressed about it. And I'm like, what am I gonna do now? I want this BHAG, this big Harry audacious goal, and I think I need to think bigger. And you know, you're thinking, what can I do when I turn sixty? Six at sixty, sixty at sixty, what about and then I thought of the quote, I thought of if your dream doesn't scare you, it's not big enough. And that scared the crap out of me. I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'm onto something here. And and so the good news is I had about two and a half years at that point to before I turned 60. And so I thought, OK, I, it wasn't like this switch that was like, oh, I can do this. It was like, huh, this is really interesting. It scares the crap out of me. I wonder if I can do this. What can I do to prepare, prepare myself mentally and physically to see if it's even possible? I didn't have any role models to you know see if that you know was feasible, particularly at my age, and and so the next year I trained for a Quentin Tupple Ironman, and I also did about twenty Ironmans on my own, where I would just go out for a day and do an Ironman, and I, and so I was just testing my body more and more just to see what it was capable of and see if I, I could prevent injury and all those sorts of things, and I did. You know, and, and so I, I started getting more confident that, okay, I can do this. And then about probably nine months before I was actually going to start the journey, I started sharing it with some of my friends. And I actually have a lot of friends in the running community locally. And I started sharing it with them. And I thought, you know, I'd get this, like, that's awesome. Will you? This is great. You know, and, and all I got was the naysayers. I got the people saying, and these are my best friends out there saying, are you crazy? What do you think? You can't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. You're too old. You're too. They started throwing up all the excuses why it couldn't be done and why it's never been done, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, at first it disappointed me and frustrated me because I'm thinking, you know, here are the people that I expect to support me. And they're like throwing crap at me, you know? And then I realized, you know, that they were speaking of their own limits, not mine. They were projecting how they felt about it for themselves and, and saying that it couldn't be done. And that. Wasn't where I was coming from. And I didn't need to, I didn't need their support. I mean, I wanted their support, but I, I didn't need their belief in me. All, the only person I needed to believe was myself. And so I just needed to continue to fortify myself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to get ready for what would be the biggest challenge of my life. And, and um, most of those people came along for the ride once I got going. But it was one of those things where you realize that, you know, it, it's your dream, not theirs. And so you can't expect them to jump on and and be all excited for you right from the get-go. And that's okay, you know, as long as you believe it, as long as you want it badly enough. You know, and I I knew that there was certainly a a pretty good chance of failure, but I was going to go and give it everything I had. If I failed, I was going to learn a lot about myself. And if I didn't fail, it would be, you know, one of the biggest accomplishments I've ever done. So no harm, no foul either way.
1: So talk to us about the planning. What went into the planning for that first year and who helped you? And
0: There aren't actually 60 Ironman races in a year, right? All over the world, there's not 60 Ironman races. And so I was basically focused on, from logistical standpoints, I was focused on racing in the U.S. And I wanted to do a combination of actual races, the ones that I could work into my schedule, and then everything else had to be on your own. So I would follow all the race rules and guidelines as far as times and cutoffs and distances and all that sort of stuff and whatever like in in a triathlon you can't draft off another biker you know in in the bike and most of the time i was biking by myself a couple times i would have people that want to join me and i would say you can join me but you have to ride behind me because i'm not going to draft off you you know type everything i did was like up to race standards and rules and that sort of stuff. But anyway, so I had a bunch of races that I, I picked that I, I wanted to do. And then I turned to my partner and I call him my Uber Sherpa. I told him, I said, I'd like your help on this. If you want to commit to doing this. And he's like, what do you have in mind? And I'm like, well, you know, we've got a, he's a a really strong cyclist and he, he loves to cycle mountain passes and up in high elevation and all and he's cycled all over the country and so in his mind we should go to the most epic places to do the <laughs> iron man. conceptually that sounds really good until you think about the logistics here which meant that i'm doing an iron man but i'm not only just doing an iron man i'm running and cycling climbing mountain passes and with elevation and, you know, elevation causes dehydration and it makes, you know, lo- loss of oxygen. You know, there's a lot of other athletic things I've got to keep in mind that I've got to now survive, not only an Ironman, but an Ironman in these amazing places that are also, you know, some of the toughest places in the, in the country. So um, I used to just, you know, swear him and say, you're trying to kill me, aren't you? <laughs> But you always have to remember the other ads, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so as, as we went along, I got stronger and stronger because I was doing these races in a lot of our national parks, Yosemite, Glacier, Grand Tetons, Grand Canyon, Big Sur Coast. I mean, some of the most beautiful scenery in the country. I did a bunch in Colorado, a, a lot in California, Death Valley, just all over. And they were challenging. You know, I mean... They weren't easy Ironmans. I mean, when I, I look at the courses we created, and and Chris really laid out the the course logistics for me, particularly on the riding part. You know, they're tougher than any other race I've ever done. You know, the races that were I doing on my own were much tougher than the the races I signed up for. But they were also they brought a whole different element to the experience that you know I don't have any regrets at all about. But it definitely was a a logistical challenge to to put it all together and I relied heavily on on Chris to help me pull all that together and, and really figure out what are the best places to go and what time of year do we want to go where. And sometimes you're making adjustments on the fly. I remember we were headed for what was going to be number 25 in the journey. We're headed to we were on the central coast of California. We just finished one on the central coast and we were headed to Lake Tahoe to do one there. And as we're driving Chris is looking at his phone and seeing that like, there's rain in Tahoe for like the next week. And it's just like heavy rain all week. And was like, that doesn't sound good. You know what, what should we do instead? And, and maybe go back to Tahoe the following week type thing. So he's like, and, and a few seconds later, he's like, I know we can go to the grand Canyon. Wow. And I'm like, really? And he's like, I said, where are we going to swim in the grand Canyon? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 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 and he's like, You can swim in Flagstaff. We'll find a pool and you can swim in Flagstaff and then you can bike up to the Grand Canyon, which was about 70 or 80 miles, and then you, which is mostly going up an elevation the whole way. Um, And then you can finish the ride in in the park and then do your run in the park. It's like, okay, so we're off the Grand Canyon and knocked out that one. But yeah, it, it took a lot of just, figuring things out and and being flexible along the way to make other things work as we needed to. Are you enjoying the show? Help us
1: out by sharing the podcast. You can win some cool prizes like headbands, wristbands, training programs, shout outs, and more. Especially if you're part of an existing running group, online community, or have friends that you think will enjoy the show. Get your personal referral link at racemob.com slash referral.
2: Well, on this journey, were you a sponsored athlete? Did you have corporate support through this journey as well on the back end, or is that all self-supported, self-subsidized?
0: 99% self-subsidized, I'll put it that way. I I had a local Fleet Feet owner offer to supply me with my running shoes for the the duration, which was amazing. I had somewhere along the line, I was doing an Ironman Ironman Santa Rosa in California, and um, Rudy Project had heard about what I was doing shortly before that, and they met me there. They had a booth there, and I was running the race there. And they um, gave me a, a Rudy Project helmet and some racing glasses. And um, I had another experience where I ended up getting a, a Blue 70 gave me a, a free wetsuit. And so I had some some in kind support along the way, which was very nice. But I'd actually tried to get some sponsorship before it all started, and you know, who wants to sponsor a 60 year old guy who says he's going to do 60 Ironmans? Apparently, they didn't believe I could do it either, so (laughs) I think I'll have better luck when I turn 70. (laughs) Talk a little bit about the gear.
1: What types of shoes were you wearing? What suits? Yeah, and what kind of gear does a triathlete
0: need? In the swim, you need, you know, just something to swim with, but you you need goggles and you need, in a lot of the the swims I did, I, I was swimming in, you know, mountain lakes and Glacier fed mountains and you needed wetsuits and that's a wetsuit and that sort of stuff. The funny thing about the, the whole wetsuit thing. So we had done a Ironman in Glacier National Park, which is in, you know, in Montana. And a friend of mine had a family little cottage in Montana, not a couple hours away and said, you're welcome to go there for a couple days and chill out. And you could even do an Ironman there if you wanted to. There's a lake there. And I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds great, you know, and and so there's the lake. There is called Lake Kukunusa, and it actually straddles the Montana, U.S. and Canada border. So it's right up at the very top end of Canada. And you know, I, I asked my friend. I said, you know, is we were going in early June. I'm like, can you swim in the lake in early June? Because at that time, that far north, sometimes it can be a problem. He said, oh you, yeah, you'll have no problem at all. He said, my, my he didn't go normally, but his sister from Utah went during the summer. And she said, you know, they swim at all times. So I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. So at that point I had a sleeveless wetsuit. So I wore the sleeveless wetsuit. I get in the water and as soon as I get in the water, it's like the first thought in my head was, oh my God, this is so cold. How am I going to make it 2.4 in four miles? Right. right. <laughs> I, I understand the whole negative chatter in your head thing. And so I, I know how to challenge that. So as soon as I heard that chatter going off, my immediate response was, but will, you know, this water is so refreshing, so amazing, and this lake is beautiful, and you've got the whole lake to yourself. I had the whole lake to myself because nobody else was swimming in it because it's too freaking cold. <laughs> but I ended up swimming and, and getting through the swim. I come to the edge of the water to start climbing out of the water. Chris usually is there waiting for me, often taking pictures, and he thought he was just going to get the normal thing, me coming out of the lake going, going for the bike now, you know, and kind of waving at the camera. And instead, he catches it all on video. I start to stand up in the water, and I'm just shaking uncontrollably. And I start to walk, and I, I look like Frankenstein, and my eyes are all bugged out and glazed. And I literally walk a step, and I fall back in the water. And I stand back up, and I start to walk, and I, I can't hold my balance. And as I'm getting closer to him, I am just I just look like I've got hypothermia setting in, you know? And And, of course, he gets it all on camera. <laughs> And later we just laughed about it. But at the time it was pretty scary. I actually posted it on Facebook and some of my friends go, Will, what are you doing? This is you can't do this to yourself. You know, this is crazy. And I'm like, I appreciate your concern, but I, I know what I signed up for, and I know the water was very cold. And I know I needed to push myself through it. And I got through it and I'm fine. And, you know, everything will be okay. Well, you know, long story short, a friend of Bess, who's now a friend of mine in New Zealand, saw that on Facebook, had a friend who worked for this Blue 70 distributor in, in New Zealand and contacted him and said, can we do anything to get Will a long sleeve wetsuit? And he called the, the owner of Blue 70 in Seattle and told him my story. And John, the CEO of Blue 70, sends me an email and says, Will, what, kind, what size wetsuit do you need? <laughs> so that's how I got my, my wetsuit, which is amazing. It went from New Zealand to Seattle, back to me. Um, just because people were, you know, following the journey and trying to support me along the way. So, you know, that's what you need for swimming. Obviously, you need a bike and the bike shoes and the helmet and the glasses and everything and the the bike kits for the bike. And then you can run and just your normal running gear and and that sort of stuff. So, you know, the bike is definitely the, the more problematic, more expensive, but also you got the mechanical aspects that, you know, if something can go wrong, that you've got to be ready to be able to fix fix a tire, a chain that goes bad, or something else along the way. At, at one point, we were in Telluride, and I'd just literally come off down a mountain and gotten into a flat part. And within a quarter mile of being on a flatter terrain, I had my whole wheel, which was a carbon wheel, a deep dish wheel, just kind of disintegrate on me, Yeah, which was crazy. And luckily, if I'd been going down the mountain at the time it happened, which was like a couple of minutes before, it could have been a disaster. As it was, I, you know, I heard this loud bang. It, it felt like it was like a shot and it was my back wheel and tire just kind of blowing and, and splintering apart. And I was able to kind of come to a stop and not crash and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I could be all, all day and share stories with you about all the, the mishaps, not necessarily on the bike, but just, you know, I swam with alligators and sharks and, and, and stingrays and and seals and you know i mean there's always you know an adventure when you're out there you know doing these things so there and bears i had had some couple bear encounters so lots, lots of things to keep you <laughs> <laughs> wow
1: <laughs> what's maybe uh a time that was the most difficult or were there ever times that you didn't think that you were going to make it to the finish line
0: yeah there were actually three races that i aborted partway through and i just Two of them were were smoke related, like you're dealing with in California right now. One was in Telluride, and, and Telluride's in this box canyon. And I had done my swim, gone over Dallas Divide, which is a huge climb through the San Juan Mountains and, that got on the other side. It was about 70 miles into my bike ride. Chris catches me in the car. He had been up ahead of me. He comes back, weighs me down. I pull over the side of the road, and he said, Will there's a local wildfire over the, the ridge that, you know, all the smoke is coming into Telluride. It's kind of sitting there and, you know, you're not going to be able to finish your race today. I was on the side of the road and I sat there. We stood there for about five minutes just agonizing. What do I do? What do I do? And I had experience um, with wildfires when I lived in California and when I was training for Ironman Lake Tahoe. And I knew how the particulate matter can really be dangerous you know, just causing lung lung damage, even when you don't realize it at the time. And I thought, I can't jeopardize this whole journey for this race. You know, I'm better to pull out, even though I'm through the hardest part of the race and, you know, kind of on the backside. And so I, I pulled out of that race and, and ended up, you know, making up for it. Later, I had another race in Alaska where I did the same thing. It was smoke and I pulled it. We ran into a smoke issue. And then the third time On the the second year, when we decided to keep moving forward, on February 5th of that year, Chris got diagnosed with kidney cancer. It came out of the blue. He had peed some blood and gone in to check on it. After some tests, he found out he had kidney cancer. And so we literally put a pause on everything for like four months from his diagnosed time to, to getting all the tests and then his surgery and then the recovery time. And In that time, we had decided we were going to try to squeeze one in while we were waiting for results and before his surgery and all that sort of stuff. And we went to Death Valley and I started it and got about halfway through the bike. And I just, I was so, you know, my mind just wasn't in it. And we were still just reeling with all the the cancer scare part of it that I just, you know, at, at some point I said, you know, let's just call this a good training workout and, you know, do this another day. And so we did. So, even though I only did forty-five iron oh, only. There was about a four month hiatus for the cancer episode. I mean, the second year ended up being harder than the first, even though there were fewer Ironmans because we had to make up all that lost time. We didn't have to, but we decided to. You know, one thing that the cancer scare did for us is, you know, we came out the other end and Chris was more determined than ever. Because you know we didn't know whether we're just going to say pause and not go back to it or what was going to happen. We didn't know what his recovery was going to be like, but when he got through it and he didn't need luckily, he didn't need any chemo or radiation because they literally took the whole kidney out, and there was no cancer anywhere else. So you know that was great. But came out of that just really, you know having even a stronger appreciation for taking every day as a gift and, and giving it all we had. And, and Chris is like, I want to go bigger and bolder. Than ever before, you know, and so we decided that we were gonna we were driving around from place to place. Obviously, we, we were putting lots of miles on the little camper. I mean, a, a SUV that tows a little teardrop camper. That's how we traveled around. So, us in the teardrop camper decided to do one. We were doing some in, in the state of Washington, and then we went up to Vancouver and to Whistler and did one up there. From there, we drove through all of British Columbia, all of the Yukon and into Alaska. So we, we went to Denali. Um, it's like a three or four day just driving nonstop to, to get there, you know, and bear country. I mean, at one point in upper northern British Columbia, we saw like 20 bears within a 10-mile stretch of the road. Amazing journey. Um, we came back through Canada and, and went to Banff National Park and Jasper National Park in Canada, which are amazing, and we did an Ironman there. So we, we really packed a whole lot into that, you know, from, by the time we restarted the journey, it was towards the end of May of 2019. So from that point through the end of the year, we were just going gangbusters to pull off getting to hundred and then, you know, I couldn't be satisfied. So I had to go to 105, but that's another.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, the documentary, when's the movie coming out? <laughs> I've, I've told people, if anybody wants to do one, I'm, I'm ready. I mean, really. I mean, we're, we're honored to, to be able to share this amazing story um, with our listeners. And it's more than just the athletic achievement. Clearly um, saying that there's there, time is just a number. Age is just a number. And you are in control. You, there is a fountain of youth. You know, it's effort and determination and consistency and tenacity and no-quit attitude.
0: Yeah, I tell people that I am not... A gifted athlete at all. I mean, my past shows that I didn't come into this with great genes that just I could go out and do this stuff. My, if I've got a superpower, it's grit, you know, and I, that's something that we all can cultivate. And Angela Duckworth is the preeminent expert on grit. She's written the book grit. She does a lot of research. And what she says in her, from what she's found out from all her research is that you know, it's not the most gifted, it's not the most talented, it's not the strongest or the fastest that succeed in their fields. And she's done research with athletes and with students and with business people and people of all walks of life. She says it's the people with the most grit that really rise to the top of whatever, you know, profession or pursuit they're going after. And, you know, that's what I've taught myself to do is to cultivate my grit, to keep pushing you know, through when I hit those obstacles and when I fail to pick myself back up and figure out what I need to do differently next time and to keep moving forward. Because I've had a lot of people along the way say, you know, why are you doing this? If it's important enough to you, you can keep doing it. And to me, the thing that has kept me on the endurance side of, of athletics is I call it the sweet spot. And it's when you get to a point in a race or in a training workout Where you are taxed to your limits and physically and mentally, you are just like, you just wanna quit. Every cell in your body is screaming, stop, stop, stop. And in that moment, you have a choice. You can either stop or you can push through. And there's nothing sweet in that moment, but I call it the sweet spot because if you push through afterwards, it's like drinking the sweetest elixir you ever could because it changes who you are. It gives you the confidence, it gives you the resilience, it builds the grit. That tells you that you are capable of so much more than you ever will realize you're capable of. And if you just keep pushing and moving forward, you're going to find yourself, you know, a stronger, better version of yourself. And so, you know, that's been my endurance journey has just been a journey in grit and learning how to push through when other people might not. And, you know, if there's a secret sauce, that's the secret sauce, you know.
2: This is great for Kevin and I. This is fantastic for our listeners. I mean, the the sage wisdom and how athletic, especially in endurance sports, the parallels to life because we're always going to be faced with adversity. Um, there are always going to be setbacks, and it's how we react, how we respond, how we pick ourselves up, and and keep moving. So, um, and you're living that every single day.
0: And it, it, you're right; it does impact every part of your life. I actually just wrote a blog post last week that was seven mental hacks from an endurance athlete to get you through the pandemic. And, you know, all the things that were honed in me over years and years, but certainly over the journey over the last two years, you know, I apply during this pandemic, you know, and there are the, all these life lessons that come with pushing through and the grit and the determination and the mental resiliency that you need for any of life's obstacles. And to me, that's the gift of endurance sports. That's that's why I, you know, will continue to do it as long as I can, because I, I get so much from it in return that helps me in the rest of my life.
2: What I share with some of my teammates and athletes is the mind moves the body. You know, sometimes we, we focus so much on the, the effort, but ultimately it's your, your your mental strength what is able to will you through so many situations in life and certainly in athletics. You know, the mind moves the body. So, grit.
0: Yeah. And I, I strongly recommend the book Grit by Angela Duckworth for your readers. It's an amazing read. She's, she's a researcher. She's a professor. So there's a lot of, you know, the science behind it and the research behind it, but it's also in a, a very user friendly format that just gives you inspiration along the way of, okay, you know, this is something that I, I want to be part of my life. And she defines grit as being uh, the combination of passion and perseverance. And she talks also in, And perseverance about it being perseverance for the long haul, because to get great at anything, you can't just have perseverance in the moment. I mean, that's good, but you really have to have it for the long haul if you want to really achieve your greatest potential. And to me, that's, you know, what I've done with the endurance side of sport is, you know, I've been, you know, my first marathon was 18 years ago. And I've been on this endurance path at some level for the last 18 years. So I have been committed to it. I've had the perseverance for the long term. That's a big part of my journey. It, you know, I, I wouldn't have fathomed having done this had I not had that part of the journey that gave me the confidence to keep pushing the envelope, keep pushing myself along the way to get to that point. And so it's not just, I want to go out and train for a marathon. It's what am I going to do next? You know, and, and we can come in and out of the sport and we can come in and out of those things that we love. But Interesting thing I also learned that I think is one of those life lessons. I realized when I did my first Ironman, I was turning 50. I was hitting what I now see as a midlife crisis. I wanted to feel young and vital and strong. And I thought an Ironman was a great way to do that, to show myself, but also to show others. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, when I get done with this, I'm going to get an Ironman tattoo and all, you know, all this sort of stuff. After the race was over, I didn't want the tattoo. And why I didn't want it was I realized through the journey and certainly through the race that the reason I wanted it was to feed my ego. And I had experiences post race in New Zealand, which is, you know, another podcast altogether that I, I wanted to use the sport and use my endurance efforts as a way to nourish my soul. And, and so I, I've since, you know, that time. So for the last 10 plus years. I've used endurance not to feed my ego, but to nurture my soul. And so, you know, the, even though I was doing 105 Ironmans, I combined it with the Live Your Bold mission. And so as it, I was going around the country, I was speaking to kids at, at schools and I was um, helping people break through their barriers and providing Live Your Bold starter kits and, and doing whatever I could to encourage others to step out of their comfort zone because the, the serving the others, that purpose piece. Was a way to nurture my own soul through my own journey. So it it wasn't just about me going out to do this because I could or I wanted to, but how do I match that with something that I think will magnify and bring positive impact to others along the way?
1: Incredible. Talk to us about what's next. What do you have on the horizon? What are you working on these days?
0: Well, from an athletic standpoint, when you do two years of Ironman, (laughs) <laughs> and don't do a lot of other things. I, I realized that, were, that when I finished in the end of 2019, that there, I did have a couple athletic goals. One was I didn't want to do any races in 2020, but I didn't want to have that focus of just, you know, I've got to train for this and, and at the exclusion of some other things. I wanted to have more flexibility and I wanted to really love what I was doing and not feeling like I had to do it. Like today, I went out for a six and a half mile run and that was great. You know, I didn't, have to do a, I didn't have to do a 2.4 mile swim and 112 mile bike and 20 miles before that. So I, I decided I wanted to work on three things that I lost during the journey. And that, you know, it was strength. I do a lot of core work. I do a lot of weights and, and strength work as part of my own conditioning. And I couldn't, I did that some on the journey, but certainly not at the level that I would normally do it. So I wanted to work on strength again. I wanted to work on flexibility because when you're, going from race to race you're you're not very flexible and I'm not that flexible anyway as, as an athlete so I knew that was something I wanted to work on and because I was always going long I wasn't working on speed and I wanted to get back some of the speed that I lost going long for 2 years so those are my focuses for, for this year and then we'll look at you know what races come after that I've got some ideas um, but, but you know the, the main thing is I just want to keep pushing myself keep having fun and and keep being healthy so I can keep doing this. I don't know if you've ever heard of the guy named Lou Hollander. He was the first 80-plus-year-old to finish the Kona Ironman World Championship. And, you know, with an Ironman, it doesn't matter whether you're 80 or 25, you have the same cutoffs. You know, there's no adjustment for cutoffs based on age. So Lou, at 82 years old, completed the Kona Ironman and all the cutoffs that every other athlete did. And I I recently, during the pandemic, a couple months ago, I happened to run across an article on Lou and he's now 90 years old and lives in Oregon and he's not doing Ironmans anymore, but he's out there running and pushing himself every day. He's still doing shorter distance triathlons at 90 years old. And I, you know, one of the sage advice that he has a couple of things that he said in interviews that I just think are brilliant, but also make me just like, you know, I'm following your lead here. You know, he doesn't have this discipline. Well, he does have a discipline training regimen, but it's not what I, from a coach's standpoint, it's not what I would recommend, but it's it's a great kind of philosophy. Every day he goes out on a and does a workout, which is most days you know, I don't know how many days he takes off, but most days he's going out for a run or a bike or something. He's always pushing himself to anaerobic condition with every um, with every workout he does. You know, he might be running up a hill, he might be running and sprinting, but he's gonna get to that anaerobic capacity where he can't go anymore. And what I find really interesting about that, when you really study the, the science and research around aging athletes, which I do pretty consistently, is that most older athletes we'll stop doing those hard, short distance sprint type anaerobic workouts because it's hard, it's difficult, it's taxing, it's, you know, it's not fun. But that's what has kept Lou in the game for, you know, into his 90th birthday. And so I think we fall back to our complacency. We fall back to those things that, oh, it's easy for me to go out on a long run, but am I really pushing myself? And, you know, sometimes you are pushing yourself on a long run. But I mean, I, I think we do get into that comfort level. And I think that's why you see a lot of people drop out of the sport or slow down. And the research tells us that our VO2 max is going to decline over time, but we can lessen that, that decline so much just by doing things that are going to push ourselves, you know, in the way we train and work out and those sorts of things. The other thing that Lee says that I think is brilliant is he says people always ask him, and, and I'm sure y'all heard this too, is how can your knees take it, you know? Aren't you killing it? And he's like, I don't know about you, but I'm working my knees every day. As we get older, anybody, but I think as we get older, it's, I, I hear the excuses all the time. I can't do this. I wish I could do this, but I got bad news or I can't do this because of that. And I think the second we start using age as an excuse is when we turn old. I, I agree with what you said earlier, Bertrand, as far as like not being 60 years old, being 60 years young, but I, I call it 60 years bold. Which is, you know, is not accepting age as a definer for what you, what your limits are. And because everybody's different, but we, we, all I need to do is see somebody like Lou out there still doing it. And that gives me the inspiration to go, okay, it can be done. You know, I know it can be done. So, you know, why can't it be me? And if I, if I put in the work, I'm going to have a much greater chance of getting there than if I don't. So just keep them at it.
1: What are some of the tactical things that you've done to, aid in recovery or age you as you've aged? Are there other, are there things that you're doing that have helped you feel like you've prolonged uh, your athletic career?
0: Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tie this into a group of runners that I, I know very well in my local community. There's a group of runners that range from probably in their, for the most part, there's some outliers here, but mostly from their 40s and 50s up to their 60s that is a big running group and they have like, 20 to 40 people that might show up for a run, and a bunch of guys and a bunch of gals that are all really strong runners, and they're going out and they're they're meeting, you know, three times a week and running hard, and and they might be running on the off days and all that sort of stuff. And I swear, within that group, there's always somebody that's you know has a running injury, right? And it's because they're always running hard and they're always they're always letting their runs be driven by their egos. You know, they got to keep up with the guy beside them and all that sort of stuff. My advice is, you know. One, train for yourself. It doesn't ma- mean that you can't do some social runs or you can't have a running partner or, or that sort of thing. But if you're running with other people, you're not running to train for yourself. You know? And so what's your training plan? And, and really being focused on how you can improve and not doing it because everybody else is doing it. I am not a fan of recovery runs. I think it's stupid. To me, if you look at the science, You you go for a hard run, you're going to tear the microfibers of your muscles, and then you need to recover. And and people will say, well, I'm going to recover with a recovery run. Well, no, you're running on the same legs that you ran on yesterday. That's really not that smart. So why don't you bike or swim or do some other activity so that you give your body a chance to heal so you'll be stronger for the next workout? You know, I equate a lot of my longevity and being injury-free is to training smart you know, I can train hard, but I'm I'm not going to run back to back day, I'm going to run, then I'm going to bike. I'm going to throw in some swimming. I'm going to throw in some strength workouts. You know, but I'm going to you know alternate what's going to be a good regimen so I'm taxing my body but not overtaxing my body. And so just being very mindful of those things about you know what makes sense. And if you've got a good coach or you know you know that stuff, you should do that. And you know, a lot of my struggles early on in my running career was I was just you know, winging it and didn't know what the hell I was doing. And this was all before the internet. And, you know, I was just like, you know, experimenting and coming up empty and and really not doing things the way I should. And once you start paying attention and getting good advice and following that advice, you're going to be much stronger and much healthier for the long term than if, if you don't listen to that kind of advice.
1: Is there anything that we haven't touched on? Anything that you want to tell our listeners or talk about?
0: If I can do some shameful plugging, can I do yes, oh. absolutely. 100%. I've got this book. It's, it's called Journey to 100. And in addition to Chris being an Uber Sherpa, he is like an amazing photographer. So on the journey, he took the most amazing pictures of the journey and where we went along the way. Along the way, we would do these race posts and I would write up you know the summary of the race that I just completed and, and then add some of Chris's pictures. And about halfway through the first year, people would start saying, you know, I had one friend who was like, oh, my God, Chris, these pictures are amazing. And she just kept gushing and gushing about the pictures. And then she's like, oh, and what you did with the Iron Man was good too, Will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we were going to these epic places and because he was such a great photographer, you know, the, the pictures really showed the story better than I could convey in my words sometimes because you were... You know who can imagine? You know, 112 miles along, you know, along the Big Sur coast and and the California coast, or being, you know, going up Logan Pass in, in Glacier National Park, or having the Grand Tetons as your background for your run, or whatever it might be. So we got so much feedback along the way. Everybody started saying, "Oh, you should do a coffee table book. You should do a coffee table book." And we actually laughed and ignored that for the first like hundred times people said it, and then. Um, Finally, we're like, at the end of the, t- towards the end of the journey, I actually said, you know what? A lot of you have said we should put out a coffee table book. Would you actually pay for a coffee table? book? Because we're, we're seriously considering it. But if you're just saying it to be nice, it's okay. But, you know, I want to know. And we got this overwhelming support that, yes, do it, do it, do it. So I wrote the text of the journey uh, and, and put it along with Chris's photos. And, and you can check out the book on, on our website, liveyourbold.com i 'm actually writing the detailed story of the journey right now, which is more just you know the day to day nitty gritty and all the the deep dive into the the race itself or the racing itself and everything that we went through so it's been a fun project to kind of sink into you know, during the pandemic for sure
1: and you have training programs too, right? You have a
0: training you can go on live your bold or I also have another website called Endorphin Freak. One piece of advice that I would give i hope that comes across and What I've shared today, but certainly something I like to share with audience when I speak is is that I want to give you a challenge, and I hope that um, you're encouraged to set a goal that is so bold that you have to grow into the person who can achieve it. Because if you do, you're going to change who you are, and you're going to become a better version of yourself, and you'll you'll never look back, and you'll never regret it.
2: Powerful, inspiring, and um, just fantastic. Uh, Really, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we appreciate you and uh, for making the time and really sharing uh, so many takeaways from our time with you today. And uh, a remarkable journey. We know that there are more pages being written <laughs> to the book of Will Turner.
0: The pages don't stop till you stop, right? That's right.
2: Live your bold.
0: Live your bold. I really appreciate it, guys. It's a lot of fun to talk to you guys.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Race Mob Podcast. Check out all of the show notes, or find a running buddy online at racemob.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on moving.